0: Hi, my name's Lucinda. I'm a healthcare accreditation coordinator as well as an RN. I have no affiliation with joint commission, CMS or any of that. I'm just a regular healthcare accreditation coordinator. Um, I want to remind you that my opinion is that of my own and not necessarily that of my organization before we get started today. So today's topic is going to be all about diagnostic overshadowing among groups experiencing healthcare disparities. Um, This was uh, from Sentinel Event Alert issue 65 that was published June 22, 2022 by the Joint Commission. So what is diagnostic overshadowing? Well, it's when a patient presents uh, with an existing diagnosis or disability Clinicians might attribute any symptoms to the existing condition. Um, it's like a type of cognitive bias that can cause unnecessary suffering, unsafe care, and adverse events related to missed or delayed diagnoses. Unfortunately, the problem occurs more often among groups already experiencing these healthcare disparities, which is a really big topic this year. So, the Joint Commission gives this really great story example rather it's not a great story it's unfortunate about a 42 year old woman with a diagnosis of mental illness who visited a gastroenterologist and unfortunately that was actually her second experience when I look deeper into the story um, her first experiences with diagnostic overshadowing was in 2015 and I'll read it from her her own words I began having episodes of crushing chest pain After emergency room doctors ruled out a heart attack, I followed up with my cardiologist from the medical group where my primary care physician worked. I had only been in the exam room for five minutes before he told me that my chest pain was due to anxiety. I walked out of his office in tears. I knew this pain was not anxiety. I had experienced anxiety and panic attacks before and this pain was much worse. I vowed to get a second opinion, so I found a cardiologist who oversaw a woman's medical center associated with a major hospital in New York City. She asked questions the other cardiologists didn't bother to ask. She was in, interested in the fact that I was over 40 years old and that I had been diagnosed with both migraines and um, Raynaud's syndrome. This doctor ultimately diagnosed me with Prinzmetal's angina an uncommon form of decreased blood flow to the heart. Please excuse me if I mispronounce that. Um, she prescribed me a calcium channel blocker and the frequency and severity of the attacks dropped significantly. I called my primary care physician to inform her I sought a second opinion for my chest pain. I told her the chest pain was not due to anxiety, but rather a result of this type of angina. She simply said, thank you for letting me know. I don't know what I expected, but I felt disappointed by her response. (laughs) I kind of have to laugh because I kind of had a similar experience recently. And, you know, your patients do know their bodies. Her second experience was the one that um, the Joint Commission published in this Sentinel Event Alert. Um, In 2017, I began frequently being nauseated and experiencing stomach pain a gastroenterologist told me I had functional abdominal pain syndrome, or FAPS, and I simply had to learn to live with it. When I went home and googled this disorder, I don't know, Google can be a weapon too. I mean, it's not always a good thing because, you know, you have to use critical thinking skills. Anyway, I came across a paper on the syndrome which described the condition um, as a like a mental disorder or emotional state which was leading to the pain I was experiencing. I was I was furious about it and resigned to being dismissed by medical professionals. So she didn't go back to the doctor. I lived with the pain and nausea for months, and I began unintentionally losing weight, which then triggered my anorexia. I hadn't restricted my food intake since 2012. She had a history of this and I started to enjoy the feeling of seeing the numbers on the scale drop when I weighed myself, Um, yes. Eventually, I sought a female gastroenterologist at the Women's Medical Center where I had success with the cardiologist. She took me very seriously and put me through a series of tests, including an endoscopy, and everything was negative. I continued to lose weight and dropped almost 20 pounds in a few months. Finally, The GI administered a breath test, and it was determined that I had a small intestinal bacterial overgrowth, like a simple H. pylori, probably. I sent a message to the doctor who had originally dismissed my symptoms as psychosomatic, and he wrote back, thanks for letting me know. I swallowed my anger, convinced that this ordeal could have been avoided if he had taken me seriously when I first saw him. It took me over a year to gain the weight back, and even longer to confront the emotional toll of having my eating disorder triggered. So I know the joint commission didn't publish all of that story. So I like to read it from the patient's own words. So you get more of a, you know, a more of a clear picture. And this next part in her own words, I found very important. I don't feel like it was mentioned well enough. Um, in the Joint Commission Sentinel uh, Event Alert. So she says, I still have hope for the future. I still take medications for my mental illness diagnosis. It's like two antidepressants and a second generation antipsychotic that works as an adjunct to my antidepressants. However, I sometimes find myself tempted to leave them off my list of medications I provide to practitioners. I worry about how disclosing my medication regimen may influence the way the doctor views me. I almost never reveal i have bpd because bipolar disorder because of the stigma associated with that diagnosis while the experience is frustrating there is hope eventually i found compassionate doctors who saw me as a whole person and patient doctors who could treat me effectively i currently see a headache specialist for severe and chronic migraines um, she is caring and smart, and she's a broad, uh, broad certified in neurology and psychiatry. After seeing her for about five years, I felt comfortable enough to reveal that in addition to anorexia and depression, I had also been diagnosed with bipolar disorder. Many other um, articles and research that I read focused on specifically on ED patients, uh, emergency room or emergency department patients. Uh, If they present with a known psychiatric history, diagnostic overshadowing is a serious patient safety and medical legal concern. Um, And unfortunately, there are more and more cases of this. So like for an example, in one case a patient was experiencing a stroke, but complaints of weakness were deemed to be conversion disorder, during which the patient um, experiences physical and sensory problems such as blindness or seizure-like spells with no underlying neurologic pathology um that kind of reminds me of that movie brain on fire if you haven't watched it it's on netflix now Um, and it is a perfect example of diagnostic overshadowing like to the extreme and it's a true story for another patient new mood swings and personality changes were attributed to a previous diagnosis of mood disorder when the real cause was a brain tumor Now, while these are, like, big things, right, these are big things, it's not always this big. These are just, like, the extreme examples. But patients with these life-threatening medical conditions may report mood swings, personality changes, irritability or aggression, depressed mood, anxiety, or trouble concentrating. Well me being in uh, working in a quality department i want to know how you know how do we track this how do we you know how do you pull this out of the electronic health record well when someone makes a cognitive error in their diagnostic process there's not an obvious or discrete event that people can track through an electronic record Um, you have to create create ways to identify those uh, systemically that are not dependent on pass passive reporting Um, i know One of the ways that they mentioned in one of the articles was one way to approach the issue is to study patients who make repeated visits um, and then look at the cases where patients are seen in the emergency department or urgent care system, are discharged, and then return within 10 days. If the diagnosis seems to have changed and the doctors or providers get it wrong on the first pass, then we do a deep dive into the chart. Um, and I'm not recommending any of that. It's just, it's just a suggestion from a different article that I read. It was just really interesting because, you know, it is hard to track. And I know that I've, I've done this. I've looked at ED reports and gone back in the chart, you know, especially if they've come back in 10 days or, or they went to a different facility. I, we used to track that, um, at a different organization that I worked for. And of course that, all had to do with peer review and was, you know, I reported to somebody else and they took care of it from there. Now the Joint Commission says individuals with disabilities are at a higher greater risk of diagnostic overshadowing the potential of diagnostic overshadowing presents added risk to individuals with disabilities and when you look diagnostic overshadowing up that's that's pretty much what pops up most of the information has to do with um, disability or learning disabilities and things of that nature and of course um, mental health the joint commission also says speed stress and lack of training contribute to diagnostic overshadowing Time pressures faced by clinicians can cause them um, to be in a hurry or to be impatient. Um, a study from 2019 found that after prompting a conversation with a patient about their concerns, clinicians interrupted patients after a median of only 11 seconds. Lord, um, that's like one second more than <laughs> what you would pay attention to a TikTok video. Anyway. And they came away with an understanding of the patient's concerns in only 36% of the encounters. As a result of time pressures and other factors, patients are often unable to present a complete or accurate narrative of their symptoms, medical histories, and current medications. And I know, I feel like as a patient, sometimes this happens to me. I mean, they just don't have time to hear the whole story of what is going on, you know, the whole backstory, And some of it may or may not be relevant even it's just something that you're like you need to tell them you want to tell them the whole story so they get the full picture of what's going on this happens especially if you're really frustrated and you're seeing multiple specialists for the same problem this is a part that made me feel uncomfortable and I feel like we're doing this a lot and maybe I just am viewing it the wrong way but um in, in this uh, Sentinel event published by the Joint Commission, they said alerting fellow providers to a patient's disability status in the electronic health record also can help address diagnostic overshadowing. For example, UC Health in Colorado began collecting patients' disability status during new patient registration implementation by a centralized uh, call center serving 53 primary care clinics. The call center agents inquired about mobility, hearing, cognition, communication, manual dexterity, vision, and general disabilities. Um, the collected information has was integrated into the demographic sections of the EHR. In six weeks, the agents uh, registered 3,673 new patients and increased disability documentation in the uh, EHR from less than 10% to 54%. There were no reports of concerns from patients when asked about their disability for inclusion in their record. To improve efficiency in documentation, the study's authors recommended using patient portals and other ways of collecting this information, In addition to using a call center, like, I feel this information is very important. I think it would help people. I know that other uh, organizations, they already kind of collect this information, like if someone's hard of hearing or something like that, or have a a vision issue with their vision or mobility, some places are already doing this, but you have to train your providers to deal with that bias and that stigma as well so that they're not just seeing a disability when the patient walks in. And that's actually like part of the actions suggested by the Joint Commission. They want to create you to create an awareness of diagnostic overshadowing during clinical peer and quality assurance reviews and by addressing it in training and education programs. And again, some places are already doing this. It's great. Um, create training and educational programs to review diagnostic principles designed to identify the increased risk of comorbidity and diagnostic overshadowing in all patients and especially in populations experiencing disabilities or health care disparities. Um, include diagnostic overshadowing case studies and examples such as those found in, um, well, found in this paper, which, you know, if you read the Sentinel event, you can go to it. Um, develop curricula focused on the care of individuals with disabilities and within other populations experiencing healthcare care disparities in residency, fellowship programs, and continued medical education programs for physicians, uh, physician assistants, and nurse practitioners. Uh, of course, regularly review diagnostic principles, particularly those relating to diagnostic accuracy, safety, and quality. Evaluate whether diagnostic overshadowing or any form of bias could have contributed to an adverse outcome when reviewing adverse events. Uh, Use listening and interviewing techniques designed to gain better patient engagement and shared decision-making. Make them part of their care. Allow the patient to find and express their voice, pay close attention to nonverbal communication, be aware of physical setting and how it can be adjusted to make the patient more comfortable, Um, As long as state and federal privacy laws permit engage with those individuals, um, the patient knows and trusts best to help communicate effectively with the patient, especially if they have a disability. Use an intersectional framework when assessing patients in groups prone to diagnostic overshadowing to overcome cognitive biases and look beyond previous diagnoses. Um, also, review your organization's ADA compliance using the added perspective of diagnostic overshadowing to ensure that it meets the needs of the patient with physical disabilities. Modify policies, practices, and procedures to allow for all patients to obtain convenient access to appointments and ensure that the patient receives adequate time with the clinician. I know one of my big pet peeves, and I've talked about it before, and and my mother gives me permission to talk about it, is uh, she's vision impaired and she can't use the computer. Like She can't see the computer to, to do it. So like, lab results and stuff, you have to call her or you have to mail her results or you have to have her in for another appointment. Or if there's multiple things that need to be done, diagnostic tests that need to be done, we really try to make that all in one day for her so that I have to take off work to drive her and do her transportation. And, you know, I have to make it more convenient for me because I work full time. So these are like, I know this is like the perfect world, right? I know this is easier said than done. And I know on a personal level, I have had just a complete journey when my insurance changed for my my newer position that I that I got. It's been really frustrating because I have all new providers. I do not get to see any of my old providers that know me already that um, know I might be a little uptight or worried about my condition or frustrated because I've seen so many people. Um, So by the time I get to a to see a provider, I'm really emotional at that point because I'm so aggravated and so relieved if somebody does listen, I mean, on a personal level. I mean, put yourself in the patient's shoes. Um, I guess you just don't understand it until it happens to you and then you're, you know, you wanna stand on your soapbox and preach to the world. But, you know, it's just really frustrating for patients. And I know a lot of the clinicians, even me that I see, um, they stare at the computer and they do, not, they do not examine me in any way. They do not touch me. They do not listen to my heart or anything. Like I go in there, I pay, I pay my copay. I see the provider and I'm out in 10 minutes. They do not have time to talk to me about my issues. And maybe it's an ongoing issue that's been going on for the past year or two. So it's extremely frustrating. So just you know put yourself in the patient's shoes a little bit and make sure to look beyond what diagnosis they have, or look beyond some of the medications that they may take. Um, I mean, look at their medications, look at side effects and things like that. I'm not telling you how to do your job at all, but just look beyond a few things and maybe consider a few things and do a little you know, do some diagnostic testing. Don't just dismiss this patient that is having these ongoing problems chronically. All right, that's all I have for you. Hope I didn't make anybody upset by this one. Um, this is a big issue with the Joint Commission. And, um, I mean, health care inequities and all of this has been a big deal. So it needed to be covered. And most of this information is online on the Joint Commission website. And you are welcome to pull it up. Um, most of it is quoted from the Sentinel event and then i did a little extra research and went into some of the patient stories. So, and again, that movie, if you wanted to watch that, was Brain on Fire and it is on Netflix right now. And it it hits the nail on the head of what what has been going on and is really unfortunate. I am merely a humble humble nurse. I am not a provider to patients. I am I'm a caregiver. So, I just want to put that out there. But please look over the stuff and um, watch that movie and have a fantastic day and be caring to your patients.